Welcome to the Teachers Podcast in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Hi everyone and thank you for listening. In this episode, I remotely interviewed Dr. Victoria Carr, Head of Woodlands, as she is known on Twitter. I chatted with Victoria about what she's doing in school right now and how she and her team are preparing for the academic year ahead in September. We just let the chat lead us, and if I had to say what the interview is about, it's just about being a head teacher and being in school right now and what it looks like and how it feels. And I hope you resonate with Victoria and her story right now. Let's get to the interview. Dr. Victoria Carr, welcome to the Teachers Podcast today. Thank you very much for having me, Claire. So we are still in lockdown. We're still, well, <laughs> I don't know whether you call it lockdown anymore when they're kind of relaxing the rules, but we're still doing this remotely, which I'm finding frustrating. But the great thing is that I can kind of interview anyone anywhere in the world. Um, so thank you so much for being with us today. Real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So I think the best thing we can do is go to your backstory first. So I'm feeling a little bit out of um, out of sync, really, because I've had two weeks off, which has been really, really nice. Um, and I know that the summer holidays are coming up. Um, so that's coming for you soon. But tell me, what have you done so far? Like, how have you got to this point? So it doesn't have to just be teaching. What's your life story? Okay, well, um, unlike you, I'm a very old lady now. So um, 45 years <laughs> of my life story. <laughs> Are you ready for this? Listen, um, you're not that much older. <laughs> uh, so I guess the first thing to say is that I, um, I'm, I'm from quite a big family. So I'm the oldest of four children. And we were born and raised in Toxteth, which is an area of deprivation in Liverpool. Um, it was a place in the 1980s where there were riots and we lived quite a, a tricky life. Um, those people who have seen or watched my, my TEDx talk will know this, so it won't come as a surprise, but um, my dad was a violent schizophrenic and uh, our lives were quite challenging when we were growing up. So there was a lot of violence, um, you know, a lot of upheaval, a lot of deprivation. And sadly, my dad killed himself when I was eight. So my mum brought us up, she's very young, my mum as well, um, when she had the four of us. And so she brought, she was bringing us up in Toxteth and my grandparents and my auntie um, decided that they would uh, sell their businesses and their property and that they would move us, all of us, to make a fresh start. If you can imagine, it's quite a traumatic uh, time. So they sold their businesses and we moved to the Wirral to an area that had and still does have a selective system and because I was a child who read a lot and uh, I read before I went to school my mum taught me to read because we didn't have tvs and ipads and iphones back in the 70s and we were too poor to have any kind of devices what we had actually was a record player that my dad because he wasn't a kind man had cut the um cut the plug from so I learned at an early age to put the wires into a plug socket and put another plug in on top so every now and again we could listen to, to records to like 45s or whatever we listen to ABBA and everything but anyway that's a different story so my mum taught us to read because all we had was this record player that was minus a, a plug and lots and lots of books and I could read before I went to school and I did a lot of puzzles and just buried myself in books really. So when we moved to the Wirral some years later, that was really beneficial because without even trying, and back then there were no tutors or mm. anything like that, I just randomly passed my 11 plus and off I went to a grammar school. And I'm the first person in my entire family, my entire extended family, and I'm from a big family, who went to university. But I didn't really get there um, through any kind of familial aspiration per se. Although when I was a small child, when I was at the end of my reception year, my teacher, Miss Melling, said to, um, to my mum and my nan, this girl's university material. 
So for a number of years, my nan used to tell everyone, she had this photo of me in my uniform in her purse. She'd show everybody Victoria. That so Victoria was university material and we'd all be kind of rolling our eyes and embarrassed. But actually that narrative kind of stuck around me. So when I was at secondary school, my nan, who was terribly proud of me, even though I was this complete geek, um, socially inept geek, which I probably still am, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> she would like show everybody this photo of me, this shocking haircut, and um, tell everyone that I was going to university. And at secondary school, really, there was no doubt that we were all going to university. The girls at that school, my daughter goes there now, and the girls are all told from 11, really, that that's where they're headed off. They could be engineers or, you know, doctors or whatever. So I ended up at secondary school, and alongside that, it was very high achieving, very competitive. I witnessed a lot of violence as a child. So I decided that I would have to make myself strong so that nobody would be able to hurt me. So at secondary school, I did a lot of sports. I, I built myself up and, and I'm very strong now and I've continued with that. So I was this weird boffin who did a lot of sport at secondary school and people kind of signpost you to things that they think you'd be good at. So teachers would say, um, why don't you do Duke of Edinburgh? It'll look good on your um, UCAS application and you, you know, you're interested in that kind of thing. So I did that and um, I joined the Air Cadets. Um, Top Gun was uh, the, the big movie of the time and I mm -hmm. fancied myself as... Um, as flying aircraft and I joined the air cadets and from that point on I just I really loved it and being the way I am I guess an overachiever um, I moved up through the ranks at the air cadets played a lot of sport with them and then when I was 18 I thought what am I going to do with my life you know I had my heart set on becoming a helicopter pilot I wanted to fly Chinooks in the RAF wanted to be the first woman uh, Chinook pilot but I was scared and I didn't really have a strong woman in my life. I had lovely women, gorgeous, fabulous women in my life who loved me very much, but nobody really who'd done anything outside the norm, who'd, mm. uh, who could advise me or be an advocate and say, come on, you know, do something that you're passionate about, go for it, you can do what you like. So I kind of hesitated really when I was 18 and I thought, do I join the RAF and go into the unknown or do I follow the well-trodden path and I'm afraid to say I followed the well-trodden path and I went to university of course and although I don't look back because it was really really great um, and I became a teacher and I've been teaching now 23 years and it is a job that I absolutely love and all of the amazing people I've met through that journey and the things I've done I don't regret them every now and again I do think oh I wonder how my life could have been if I'd have been a pilot um, and a very, very, very close dear friend of mine um, who went to the boys' school actually next door to me, he became a pilot in the Royal Marines and um, he flew um, rescue helicopters for quite a time. And I don't think there's anybody that I'm more jealous of in my life <laughs> than him um, because he had this amazing time in Scotland. And of course, I absolutely love Scotland and he got to fly, fly helicopters. And I do think, but having said that, as I say, I have done the most amazing things in my career. So how did I get to be a head teacher? Um, fell into it as I fall into most things. Um, I kind of, I have this philosophy that when I'm an old lady, hopefully I'll live to become a really, really old lady, uh, you know, when I'm 90, and I'll be able to look back and think that I was lucky enough to seize every opportunity that came my way, that I've got no regrets, and that um, I can truly say that I've lived my life and that I've touched lives as I've gone through in a positive way. And even if it's, you know, lightly, like a little butterfly, that I've positively had an impact on children and, and, and on the grown-ups that I've come across because I know that the teacher who said to my mum and my nan when I was five that I was university material did change the direction of my life because before that nobody in my family had ever thought about university it was just yeah. never a thing um, and not only have I been but my siblings have all been and um, or, or either they've been to university or they've done qualifications and um I feel like I paved the way in some way for, for, yeah. for that. That was um, affirmed, wasn't it, at that early age? It was affirmed by her and then and, and your family started to affirm it. Yeah, aspirational chats around me and 
there was kind of like a faith in me from my family that I, you know this teacher who was because back in the 70s everybody respected the teaching profession yeah they yeah. were well respected so my grandparents were of an era that teachers were utterly respected my grandparents used to say to me if they were naughty at school and they did get you know they had the cane in those days that they'd get home and they would be too scared to tell their family that they'd been caned because their family would also inflict this terrible punishment on them because yeah. they had obviously done something wrong and um it, you know i mean that's not respect necessarily but that's you know they have this ingrained idea that um, yeah teachers were, were respected profession so um the teacher saying to my to my mum my grandma that you know i was university material it's like gold dust um it, you know i'm not gonna lie it built resentment at times between my sister who was one down from me i don't know whether she felt a little bit i don't know inferior at times i don't know we've resolved that between us in our adult lives but as children it was you know it wasn't said to her necessarily because it was a different teacher I don't know which is why now that I'm ahead I try to make sure that everything I say to the children in our school is personalized and positive and in some way transformational to both to their parents and to the children because if you do work in deprived areas and I'm lucky that I have done for the past eight years um it's important because not all children have got this wonderful home life that I'm lucky that my children have, my sisters, my brother's family have. Not all children have that. And even if people don't know my story, um, the impact of my story means that I think I'm a better adult, I'm a better human being, a better parent, a better practitioner because of it. So yeah, so through university, I, I did loads of uh, really cool stuff, rock climbing, outdoor um, pursuits and that's kind of moved into my teaching practice as well because I see the value of outdoor learning for children. Not all children learn sitting at a desk, not all children are academic. Some children, you know, learn from the outdoors, experiential learning and so on. So that, that's had a positive impact. And I also did a course um, in philosophy for children, which again is something that I brought to my previous school and was planning to bring to this school only COVID happened mm -hmm. so in time in years to you know in months to come I will have all of my my current staff trained in philosophy because um I think key things in education that I certainly didn't feel when I was uh, passing through it as a child but I have done through my postgraduate study are things like thinking not just yeah. accepting the sound bites that we get in the press not just accepting what we see spewed out in social media but really thinking about what we're being presented with and being an analytical and critical and thinking about um the purpose and the audience that that um piece of media was for and what it might generate propaganda or a political slant and i think if we have children that are starting to question that then it, you know it, it's really beneficial in your adult life to be able to be discerning about what you read and not just immediately accept what you're being what you're being given this is it and, and it's not just about the media is it it's about what we tell ourselves i think i've learned so much as an adult about how brains work and and why we think certain things we think and how we can change mm -hmm. that narrative and how we can react in different ways and it's all interlinked isn't it you don't have to just because you know we kind of made to feel like we should do it a certain way that actually it's like you, you do need to be able to step back don't you and think okay things could be different I can react in a different way I can I can look at this in a different light I don't have to take it as somebody else is intending to influence me mm -hmm. I think it's like that in, it certainly in the workplace um and I think Again, the, the way that I operate and, and my, my belief structure is that um, I think we've got a duty not just to the children that we teach in our schools, but to the colleagues that, that we work with, be that parents, um, you know, student teachers, teaching assistants, um, office staff, the cleaners, the caretakers, um, you know, all of those people that we work with. I, I think we can have conversations like that teacher had with my mum. We can have that with them so for example in my last school when i got there i was a new head and it was at a time when there was this discourse around are teaching assistants necessary do they actually add value to schools and i looked at all these teaching assistants who were lovely people and thought why me i need to help them um to become more qualified than they are so that they're more employable in case 
in case they do, you know, in case the government do decide that they're not as important as I think they are and they need to get jobs elsewhere. I need to make sure they're as highly skilled as they possibly can be. So I talked them all into doing maths and English GCSE with me. And we got, you know, I got a college, local college, and I made sure they all passed and, and they were speechless. One of them was in her 50. She said, I've not done, I've not done formal learning for like nearly 40 years. And here I am doing this. And, um, even if they may never use it, it gives people a sense of their own value. It really helps with mm. their self-esteem. And I just think we can have these influential conversations with other people and you can actually, you know, you can teach them how to think. You can teach them by giving them research, by helping them question things that were being given, by, by kind of in the same way that you would model with children, a text or a piece of work you can model with adults for you know why would you think that it, you know this is what we're being asked to do you know is there another way there must be mm. you know there must be other alternatives to this and you start to see people kind of switching their brains on rather than just absorbing what they're being told mm. it's questioning everything and I think that that helps them think differently and and if you've got that as a collective then everyone's thinking all the time and questioning things all the time and they learn to become more critical which is what you want I you know I wouldn't want to lead 90 odd people who are just doing my bidding or you know mm. I want them to act I actively ask people to challenge me because I want to be the best I can be and yeah. I want to model that that's how you could it doesn't have to be this competitive egotistical you know hero leadership model of the of days gone by it can be a really collaborative um thing that everybody does and that way we get the best out of everyone and, and the only thing i can say is it's a proven successful model for me i don't know if it would work for everybody but in the two schools i've led we've had lots of success which is you know rewarding in itself it's not my personal success it's we have been successful as a team so but it does work because you've got more eyes on it. Um, yeah. and, and I'm the same in my team. And I do say, even, even to customers as well, you know, sometimes I'll be like kind of really wanting feedback, but I don't want the good feedback. What I want is the bad feedback because I want you to tell me what's not good so I can change it. And that yeah. baffles some people. I'm like, yeah, if you're going to give me feedback, just give me the bad feedback so I can just work it out and work through it because... I'm okay with that. I've, I've, I know already that's what I'm asking for and it's fine. Right. But don't you think as well that we're really bad at taking, um, at taking compliments or taking, I, I always think, yeah. oh, whatever, don't be that. You know, people will say, oh, you're good at this, you're good at that. And I think, oh no, just stop because you don't know how to accept and be gracious in accepting, you know, yeah. positivity, I feel anyway. Yeah. Especially I think as a leader when, you know, you're, you're kind you'll never kind of get the thanks sometimes and then if you do you're like what went wrong <laughs> you know who died why why are you saying that to me do you know what's uh, so lovely though I as a you know and I, I know what you're saying but I am very lucky um my governors um I'm really lucky because they are very supportive of me and they see that I do a good job and they will actively tell me but better than the governors who are like my bosses in a way um is when other staff tell me and it's not because they're doing it publicly to, to win brownie points or anything they'll actually be specific about what it is that I've done that they've really valued or that's really helped them um, and so I get these random messages you know via many different um media platforms whether it's whatsapp or a tweet or a twitter or a, you know a twitter message or an email and they will thank me specifically for something that i've done that's benefited them or you know made them feel better in the, in our workplace so i am lucky i do get that positive feedback and i am really trying hard to say oh don't be daft or that's exactly what I meant to do or whatever. I, I just now say, thank you very much. It's really kind of you to, to say so, but it's taken me years to be able to do that. <laughs> um, so how have you managed then the transition of some children being in school and then other children still at home? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, su I suppose if you asked our parents, some might say, not very well. The majority would say very well. Um, and I, I don't know if we've done it well or not yet. I suppose that's something 
that we could evaluate later on. But I know what we've tried to do. We've tried to look at our entire student body in the first place and look at our families and we know them really well. And we knew that using online teaching tools wouldn't work. We know that we've got a significant proportion who do not have access to the internet or do not have access to devices. We've got another group who parents were working from home so they might have had a laptop but there are two or three children at home which is impossible to do online learning with and we looked also then at some safeguarding issues not the, the traditional safeguarding issues per se but things like if a child was having a meltdown in the background would we really want all the other children seeing that in their homes if we're not there to kind of um, support them in the aftermath etc etc yeah. so we made the decision for no online learning at all we put resources onto our website for each year group and we update them every two weeks and they're from a range of sources we've done um, PSHE resources some bereavement resources um, obviously the curriculum um, the spectrum of the curriculum we've also added obviously the government um, uh, sites and one or two other really great schools actually who'd obviously put a lot of work in and we've, we've linked all of that in um, and then for our families that we knew didn't have printers or who um, we knew might struggle to print things off at home for whatever reason, we printed off packs, learning packs. We've dropped them off at their houses. We've then phoned every week to check in on some of our on all of our vulnerable families actually every week. And then since half term, we've phoned every child in our school. We've got a big school, so we've got nearly 600 pupils. Um, so that, that's quite an undertaking on a weekly basis. But I know that having done kind of half a term at home, the children were feeling a little bit, you know, the parents, yeah. you know, were hoping for a little bit. So the phone calls home really have been beneficial. So now we come to the point where our key worker and vulnerable groups are increasing. So the work that is on the website for the children to be done at home is the work that the people looking after the key worker children are trying to do with them in school as well. So nobody's really at an advantage for being in school. Um, and now the year sixes have started to come back this week. Uh, it's the same. So those year six pupils who are at home because their parents aren't sure it's yet safe, they'll be able to access the same work that the students will access in school with people looking after them. So have we done it well? Honestly, I don't know. I think we've tried to do the best that we possibly can mm. in a really tricky situation. And I would say 99% of our parents see that. And again, they've sent messages thanking us so much and for informing them and keeping them sensibly and pragmatically informed about things. We haven't bombarded them. We haven't phoned them up and said, why isn't your child sending submitting work and things. We've celebrated on Twitter. So where parents are on Twitter and they've wanted to um, share their child's work, we've been able to say, well done. We've made videos each week so that the children can see their teachers, but they're not personalized. They're just, you know, pre-recorded. Mm. Uh, and, and parents have also emailed in work or if they have been struggling, they've emailed and said, Would, could, is, it, is it possible for one of you to just give us a call? And we've talked to the children who've needed it. And, you know, we've kind of tried to do things in a bespoke way. So, yeah. cause we know it's not a one size fits all. I mean, I'm a mum as well. You know, I've got a year 11 son and a year 10 daughter. My son has not done his GCSEs this year. I mean, he's happy. He already has his place in the army, uh, set up in the in the army college in Harrogate in October. So he's laughing. He's like, I don't care. Um, my daughter, however, goes to the same uh, high achieving, uh, you know, grammar school that I went to, and she's extremely anxious to do well. And she's aware that she's halfway through her GCSE year. She's still at home. So, guess I'm coming at this from a parent's perspective as as well as a head teacher's perspective. And I think mm. I am less worried about my children than perhaps some parents might be about theirs because all they see in the media is that children are going to be behind and I think they're not though are they what they are is perhaps a little bit behind on a curriculum that the government say they should be tested on there's a massive difference between being behind on a curriculum that you're going to be tested on for goodness knows what reason other than to punish schools and then behind in terms of life skills and time that you might have spent with your unexpected time that you might have spent with your family um, and I know that there are vulnerable children who have probably been having a shocking time these last 12 weeks 13 weeks and you know that's a combination 
between social care support, school support and so on. But I would say the vast majority of our families have actually rediscovered family time and done things that they would never usually have done. Again, some of that is activity led from us. So scavenger hunts where they've gone out and, and they've sent us photos where they've had the most fun photos. So all the kind of memory making that they've done in this last few months to me is probably more important than learning something that children will be tested on to simply produce a league table nationally for schools. To me, it just feels like, what's the purpose? So they're not behind. So I think a lot of parents have heard this rhetoric that is, your child's gonna be behind, and they've got themselves really anxious, even the parents of young children, whereas I'm the parent of teenagers who are doing GCSEs. And I understand that, you know, if they don't, if my son doesn't pass his GCSEs because he completely flunked his mocks before Christmas and only decided to work in January, it's not the end of the world. It really isn't. And I guess part of that is when my sister was 19, my youngest sister, she had leukemia and she was given a week to live. And I was a head teacher in Kenya at that time. And I was running a prep school and I flew home that day uh, and, um, I, th I felt like my life was imploding because I'm very, very close to my family. We've been through a lot together. And um, the fact that I thought my sister might die really put a lot of things into perspective for me. And, um, you know, she was meant to you know, go off and do her career. It never happened. Um, you know, she did recover, but it, that was because she was put on a drug trial that nobody thought she'd survive. She was the only person on her drug trial that survived. And in fact, her, her doctor wrote a medical paper about it. Some years later, I, you know, I did a bone marrow transplant for her. Again, the odds of actually finding a bone marrow donor that matches with you. And there she was. She had me. She had my other sister who was a, a close match, but not an exact match. Um, and then some years later, you know, both... My other sister and I obviously donated eggs so that she could then try and have a family of her own through IVF. And so my sister's been through an awful lot. And I look at my sister and I think if somebody like her as an adult can go through, um, you know, a, an almost certain death diagnosis, mm -hmm. the treatment for cancer for two years, um, a recovery period, you know, endless amounts of IVF, you know, all of that sorrow that comes with that and then have a family and then train and then get a career when she's almost 40. I think people need to perhaps take the long-term view and think mm -hmm. my child's in reception or year one and they've missed two, three months of school. Okay, they're not going to do the year one phonics so great, but does it really matter? Because they'll catch up at some point. And in fact, are the year one phonics important? Not really. So I think my sister's illness has taught me a lot about the long-term view and about what really matters in life. And I would say children missing a few days of school probably isn't what it's been painted in the press to be. I really don't think. I also think it, the older you get, obviously I don't really mean like or older adults but as a child you know there's a reason why children who are 18 months take a lot longer to potty train than children who are three so yeah. I mean I've got a child she's just gone four she's in nursery um, and she just got to school nursery and do you know what I tried so hard in the first couple of weeks but then after that yeah we didn't do homeschooling I'll be honest I'm not saying that I didn't read a, a lots of books I did um you know and I'd even do some phonics because that's something that she likes to do but if she didn't like doing it I wouldn't do it um and and she is back at school now but I didn't take a really formal approach because I'm thinking well do you know what she's got a long time to, mm -hmm. to get there um and I just think you know if, if you're learning the things that you should have learned when you're four when you're five then in a lot of cases, you might just learn it that way faster. And, mm -hmm. you know, I used to tutor children and I could get them through the year three um, curriculum objectives in that specific topic, the year four, the year five, in 45 minutes because they're old enough. And obviously you've got that focus time and I know that's not something that necessarily they'll get in school, but they'll be doing it together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And also, I think who decided 
that children should learn this particular thing at three, this particular thing at five. It's an arbitrary decision. And over time, curricula have changed. I mean, my daughter is um, 15 now. And when she was doing her SATs, I remember her being distraught and she, she was sobbing heart out. She had tonsillitis. I had just been told I needed to have a double mastectomy. She was doing a SATs. She had an 11 plus exam to do. She could hardly sleep. She could hardly swallow. She was hysterical. Mummy, I, I, I'm not going to get a level six. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I said, what are you going to do? She said, my teacher will lose his job. I, I'm not going to do well at school. I won't go to world grammar. I was like, what? I said, listen, she said, how did you do in your SATs? And I said, well, sweetheart, I'll tell you this. We didn't have SATs when I was at school. We didn't have reception baseline, year one phonics, year two SATs, year four um, multiplication tests, year six SATs. We didn't have any of that. And look, I have managed to be all right in life. You know, I've got a couple of master's degrees. I've got a blinking doctorate. We won't worry about the SATs for now. And I thought, yeah what is this? We did not have that when we were at school. However, we have all managed to be successful humans. So in terms yeah. of a curriculum, who decided that three-year-olds, that five-year-olds, that seven-year-olds should know this particular thing? Mm -hmm. It's decided by policymakers. It's not decided by anyone other than that. And it's, you know, I think if nothing else in COVID, we've perhaps all stopped and thought, well, if we can scratch um, reception baseline assessments now, have they really got any value? You know, what do they mm. tell people? If we can scratch year six sats, does it stop us teaching the children? Does it stop them learning? You know, I'm not against um, assessing children. I'm really not. I think assessments are really valuable if they are helpful to children, mm. you know, and teachers the world over assess children and the gaps in their knowledge and help them to address those gaps because they want children to do well. No teacher that I have ever come across in my 23, four year career has ever thought I'm going to inflict some real psychological damage on some children now, yeah, traumatizing yeah. them. And when they don't meet this standard, never mind, they'll go home and be gutted and be upset. No teacher ever. That's policy that isn't teaching and it's not learning either. No, I think I was a pilot year for SATs in year six, I think. Um, so it wasn't even that serious to me then because it was just a trial, <laughs> you know. But I remember going to the canteen to do them all seriously. <laughs> that was also a long time ago. <laughs> um, okay, so um, so obviously I, I always ask the team um, to ask you questions, you know, what questions would they ask? So Sean, uh, my ops director, she uh, says that obviously you talk a lot about training and development that you've been on. So how important do you think it is to continue with training and development, even as a head teacher? Okay. I think it is really important. Um, it, you can see very clearly um, the qualifications I've got there in all my post nominals. So you'll see that I've done a lot of qualifications, but that's not because I want to be competitive with the head teachers in the schools nearby to me or my colleagues or I want to be better than anyone else it's because I want to be the best version of me all the time I'm driven to be the best version of me um, and again I'm sure that there'll be I don't know where that comes from but there will be psychologists out there who will know exactly where that comes from particularly knowing my backstory but I just know that if I'm the best person I can be then by association, everybody around me will also have the potential to be the best person they can be. So I also think, again, this has happened by accident, that it's I'm able to demonstrate to other people that it is possible. So my background as a child, statistically, I would have been a looked after child, definitely would have had some significant social worker involvement. We did at the time. Um, you know, there would have been domestic violence, the Marax, all of that stuff would have happened to my family. So statistically, I should never have been successful academically or, or anything else. And yet here I am. So I guess I'm I evidence that it is possible from that perspective. But also I lived in Germany um, with my ex-husband. And when we first had our children, I was in Germany and I had two children under one. And I hadn't gone back to full-time teaching. I'd moved there just before I had my son and left my job in, in the Northeast. 
and I was bored. <laughs> I was bored and I thought my brain is shriveling. What can I do? So I decided to do my first master's degree and everyone thought I was nuts because I had two babies. I was in Germany. My husband was away a lot and I did this, this master's degree and I really, really loved it. It made me think the kids would go to bed. I had time in the evening. I've never really been a TV watcher. I'm not a soaps fan or anything like that. So it gave me something to occupy myself, a healthy focus. And I did my first master's degree at the same time as teaching soldiers um, and also doing some supply teaching. So really I had this fascinating, diverse life, which you wouldn't think a mum of two small children could perhaps have but I didn't know I do <laughs> exactly but I guess most people think oh I thought you like you have babies you kind of your life grinds to a halt so yeah, if yeah. people if, if people can look at you and think well if I want a baby I've actually been asked you know if I have a baby early on in my career will it stop me to, and I'm like no, having a baby doesn't stop you doing anything, you know, T not teaching for a year doesn't stop you from teaching. Teaching mm -hmm. adults doesn't stop you from teaching. So it's, it's, I suppose that's what I mean by pure accident. Yeah. You can help, help others to see how things are possible to manage. Um, and then when we, when we came back from Germany, I got my first deputy head post. I guess on the back of the fact that I had something a little different, so this master's degree was something at the time unusual now and since then there are lots of routes into doing an MA particularly for younger teachers I know that people who are doing their NQT year can, can do them if they, if they really want to max out their workload mm -hmm. um, and there are lots of opportunities but back then you know 10-12 years ago it wasn't as a common a thing and then I did my MPQH and as part of that um, I thought you know I could really do some research on leadership because I don't want to just be any leader I want to make sure I'm a good leader because by that point I'd been led by some quite poor leaders in my time and I think that's true of any teacher you have these leaders and you think they're amazing you have the leaders who you think my life you know if I was a leader I'd never behave like that so I had been led by some poor leaders. I thought, you know, one good thing would be to actually do the job and do the research at the same time so that you've got the experience and also the kind of um, the body of research that goes behind that experience. And what I started to find was things that I did, and it happens to me now, so things that I do just innately or just a part of my character, at some point during my research career, I've thought, oh, that's a thing. I, I just thought it was something that I did, but it's actually a thing that other people have researched. And it's really quite fascinating yeah, when light bulbs yeah. start. So I've never stopped being keen on learning. Obviously, that's why I did my doctorate. I've just signed up to do another master's now um, in military history, which is kind of a military leadership, which is kind of because um, I've joined the, the British Army uh, reserves so I guess wow. I want to know a little bit more about that so that I again I'm a bit more knowledgeable because I'm completely out of my comfort zone completely I know nothing at all about the army I'm starting from scratch and even that experience I think in terms of learning if you can put yourself at the start of something where you know nothing you actually have empathy with other people who because you know where am I going to go I've been a teacher 23 and a half years um, I love it I'm confident in any school, any school's got a similar places. There's an office, there's a staff room, there's a head teacher's room. Mm. Um, you know, you pretty much know how things work. Um, I don't know. I'm completely out of my comfort zone with this whole British Army thing. And I feel like a total novice, like a fish out of water. And it reminds me that there will be people coming into my school who will feel like I feel when I go off to my training nights, who just haven't got a clue. So it kind of just gives you that little tweak, as if I didn't know, but it just makes me, it brings it to the forefront of my mind that I need to be, you know, um, watchful for that and, and sort of yeah. embrace it. But yeah, training, absolutely. And all my staff as well, I embrace it. So I seek out training, I seek out um, talent and will say have you thought about this have you thought about that and eventually they come around so I've got this year particularly I've said to everybody you know I want to make sure that if you've got a passion that you're following it so we've got people this year doing ELSA courses my deputy is doing an MPQH although I have told her she's not allowed to leave she can do the qualification but I'm not letting her go yeah. um I've got my business manager thinking about the um, school business manager 
um, qualifications. So it's diverse as well. I don't just invest time in teachers. I think you should invest time in people mm. because they're my team and I, I really want them to feel fulfilled and challenged. And yeah, I, I think it just empowers your team i could be completely wrong they'll probably all get their qualifications and leave for for, for somewhere else but i don't know i think it empowers well well i get what you're saying and, and and they might leave you know i i kind of have this philosophy of you know in my team for example if somebody came and said i really want to do this and i was thinking oh i really don't want you to leave i would still gracefully let them because yeah. that because I care about them and I want them to grow and I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you you like yeah. okay <laughs> I helped you with this but okay <laughs> you may go I do say it to lots of people and I'm sure you feel the same way so they'll come to me and they'll say because you gave me this opportunity I feel ready to do this and I always say and I genuinely mean it I feel privileged to have been part of their journey because if you can help someone even in a small way to realize their dreams, then is there anything better? I, I don't know if there's any better thing than helping people to affect the, their dreams or their passions in life. And I, you know, I'm, I'm living my dream and my passion. So if I can help someone else and that sounds really kind of, twee and a little bit cliche but actually anybody who knows me knows that that's how I am so mm. um, <laughs> so I train people and then they fly, can find their wings and off they fly and then they're all wonderful and we do stay in contact and then we become great colleagues in the future and everybody you know there's this network of people that knows if they ring up and say have you got that do you know where this is that we just help one another which is just great isn't it yeah and that's and that's really what you need you need a good network around you and um, just just jumping back um what preparations are you making them for september uh well i'm not gonna lie in terms of covid no preparations at all because i think even if i was to make preparations now it could be a complete waste of my time yes the way the situation has been kind of handled to date and the way the media has kind of um, handled it around mm. the teaching profession in general just means that I think I would sooner my staff focus on now focus on their well-being and the children that they're working yeah. with now then we start wasting our time on plans for September that next week or the week after or even tomorrow might might not even happen um, so I just think we've what I've what I'm really good at is just dismissing all the chaff from the government and we just focus on what really matters, which, which is actually the children. So in terms of general preparations, it's no different to what it was before. So I was really lucky two years ago, I, took, I was asked to come to this school. It was in a tricky position really. It, it had um, some interim head teachers for a couple of years and uh, some financial huge difficulties to overcome and some standards difficulties. And it was in a category and all this blah, blah, blah. So I was asked to come over and, and kind of babysitter and ended up becoming the substantive head so I basically started from scratch so in the first year we put in all the systems and the systems are absolutely excellent and we've been audited to the eyeballs so we know they're excellent this year it was all about um, curriculum drives and nothing to do with Ofsted really nothing to do with the government nothing to do with Covid just we wanted to do really cool things so we've already this year spent all of our time planning our curriculum um, trying things out, working out what we wanted to do, working out what worked for our children. Um, and we've layered it. So we've got um, rich text, we've got meaningful links with geography and history, if that's appropriate. We've improved training for all of our staff. So we're all highly trained, we're all ready to go and the curriculum's um, squared away. So for September, if the government do decide um, that there's no social distancing, everybody's back, we'll be absolutely delighted because we're all set to go and if they decide that there is going to be some kind of blended learning whatever that might look like who knows mm -hmm. um or, so, or some kind of change or if this whole thing reoccurs or whatever then we'll just be adaptable because one thing's for certain in my leadership journey of eight years i do know and in fact in my life if i'm honest with you that 
you just have to adapt. If, if you want to survive with your marbles, you just need to adapt. You just adapt. Yes. So we haven't made any specific plans for September. And that's not because I'm lazy. That's because I think I'd rather spend my energy on things that have got certainty to them. So the curriculum will resume at some point. We don't tend to plan for Ofsted. We just do what we do. And then if they come, that's fine. Um, yeah, we're not, we're not planning for COVID because we don't really know what's going to happen, do we? I think that's sensible because, I mean, we were talking just before, um, obviously we started recording the podcast. And did I say something like... Uh, they've changed the mind three times in the last couple of weeks even about blended <laughs> learning like it is a thing it's not a thing we're doing it Scotland are doing it no Scotland aren't doing it no we're not doing it we could get into a whole political debate I mean yeah. only last night they tried to say why they do this thing I don't know because I think the key tenet of anybody who's frontline educational staff has got to be working with integrity I sleep at night because I know that's what I do I don't lie to anyone and sometimes that is so difficult but I think if you tell the truth all the time you're not worried about anything so I work with integrity with my parents the children at school the governors the staff and I think why the DfE and the government think that it's okay after what is it three months or or I don't know June the first a month say of saying that we need to have social distancing in schools of two meters and we need to have the you know the whole thing and then yesterday they tried to say that was never the case. And thankfully, some people who've got more time on their hands than me had screenshotted the original guidance and said, mm. but actually it was, the, it was the case. Why you would try to rewrite history yes. absolutely is beyond me because all it does is undermine credibility and completely eradicate any kind of trust that anybody in our profession has got. And in fact, in the main, parents. So it's no wonder that so many parents are worried about their children's safety, their education, because mm. they hear these mixed messages every day. So we've got a prime minister who's happy to come out and tell people one thing one day, one thing the next day. We've got, you know, a health secretary who does the same thing, one thing one day, one thing. We've got an education secretary who says one thing one day, one thing the next day. As a parent, as an actual, just a normal parent at home, and all that's all you're hearing, you're not seeing what's going on at school level. You, you can imagine why they would be highly anxious about their child's mm. physical safety. Do they need two meters or not? Is it a problem? Should we be concerned or not? Should I send my child out of my house or not? Are they going to be behind this? Are they going to have terrible, you know, the whole country's going to be behind by it? You can imagine for parents, it's a tricky yeah. time. So, Especially when, you know, I mean, I've read news articles where they're saying this is going to be the lost generation for a few months off school, you know, and I'm like, really? This is okay. Um, but it is, it is so confusing. I think one thing that I don't think is, is being handled very well, you, you talked about adaptability. There hasn't sort of been like, like okay, there will be a plan that adapts. They've been clear about that because obviously to get, to school in September, we would have to adapt the distancing over time. Mm -hmm. But then to kind of say that it wasn't a thing, and a sensible, everyone expects a sensible path if, if you know that the path is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. I mean, you know, it's not, you know, the decisions we've made as a school, as I said earlier, you know, may not have always been popular, I don't know, but our parents know what we've based it on so for example we wrote to them and said we won't be opening on the 1st of june in our area we know that the r8 is 1.18 1.1 1.2 whatever we're not happy with that we think it will compromise children so we're not going to do it and we stood up and we said we're not doing it and we were at that point we were the first school in our area to do that so that tells our parents that we are prepared to make tricky decisions based on their child's safety, not based on government, not based on political decisions or point scoring or winning, actually putting our necks on the line to say it's not right for all of these children to come back at this time. We then wrote to them and said we will monitor the R rate in our area over the two weeks because, again, they'd heard this message quite clearly that there were these several key tests that needed to be met, none of which had been met. So they're then thinking, well, do, should we wait for this? And the testing apps just come out because our parents are quite sensible, quite savvy, but they were confused because as we all were, is it safe or not? Then we said to them, we will monitor it. We asked them how many would send back their year six pupils. We then looked at how we could make that safe in school. 
We then welcomed them back slowly. We've walked them around the school today and showed them how it would work, the one-way system, how they could use the toilets. This is ridiculous, but this is the level of support that we've put in. And every child went home happy. The tweets have been coming in. My child's had such a great day. Thank you so much for making it safe, blah, blah, blah. So that's where you build that positive relationship. That's where you help your parents to see that you're working with integrity and honesty and that you're not just... Um, swapping and changing because of some political agenda that these are real lives that we're talking about and and I think the same once you've established that routine as you say that if, if we know the patterns that are going to happen in this order then we're okay with it and we know there are steps little steps and the end game will be all of your six children will be in on Monday and they will all be safe because we'll have walked them around everybody knows what's happening then the next step then is the year one pupils the same format because we've got a proven system and then everyone's nice and calm and we all know what's happening and so on and i think the country has not had that level of integrity and that level of kind of pragmatic progression planning over time mm -hmm. yeah pragmatic progression planning that's three p's <laughs> you never know you might use that when you create I your training <laughs> i don't know <laughs> Okay, so <clears throat> Martin, who um, is my colleague, saw on Twitter that you've been doing some recruitment recently. And you've had <laughs> 400 applications for two jobs. I mean, how did you even cope with that? Well, I think, I think that might be a slight typo. I'm not sure. We had 400 for, for four jobs, basically. Ah. So we had three, three teaching jobs. It's still a lot. Yeah, three teaching jobs and a uh, and a site maintenance officer job. And what <laughs> my my senior leadership team, who of course had to print off and then help me shortlist <laughs> those people, yeah. actually threatened me and said, uh, "Get off Twitter! You're making our school sound fabulous. Loads of people want to come and work with us." Uh. And, um, <laughs> and what can I tell you? I only ever tell the truth. And um, yeah what i say on twitter is is absolutely true there's no there's no different me that's the me that everyone knows and uh, what we did was it took us two days it was a hectic two days last week shortlisting and um, i'm happy to give feedback to anyone but the global feedback was if you hadn't personalized your letter to our school if you'd put dear sir or madam uh, your letter just went straight in the bin mm -hmm. that's awful because people should do the research about yes. Um, you know, and if it was dear sir or dear Mr. Somebody, letter in the bin because um, I'm not a Mr. Um, yeah, I'm not even a Mrs. I'm, you know, what I, I, mean? I so, honestly, I would do the same <laughs> because it's just like uh, what? Yeah, there, there needs to be a very crude way to sort of um, do, do you want to work here or not? Yeah, yeah, basically. And then anybody who left the name of a different school in the letter also been. So we kind of filtered through, filtered through, and then we um, we whittled it down, and then we were able to look at skill sets, and then uh, what we needed to complement our, our our team. And because we had, we still had quite a lot of lovely applications. We wanted to interview them all. So we did be two, two full on days because we, again, we had limited time and so on. And I, I think my team would probably tell you, I'm a bit maverick at times. <laughs> I said, how about we do this thing that I did with the army where they make you speak for two minutes about something that you don't know, really puts you on the spot. But actually, it, it reminds me of being a leader or being in a school and someone will say something to you and you think, whoa, where did that come from? That's left field. And you have to think really quickly on your feet about how to respond. So they liked it. They were like, okay, random, weird, but let's go for it. What's new with you, Vic? And then I said, <laughs> how about, I know, how about we get them to teach us something because they can't teach children because of the situation but how about we get them to teach us something about one of their interests so we'll get to know a little bit about them a little bit how they might manage us because we're all a bit um crazy so it's like trying to manage i don't know a bunch of uh, kittens all like not paying much attention um so the, and you know what we had the best fun i have had in three i think put it on twitter the best fun of the entire lockdown situation because we were taught tap dancing um you know, uh, balloon bending, 
cake decoration, the hacker dance. Um, everyone was quite scared by my really cool, aggressive hacker dance. Um, <laughs> what else were we taught? Oh, I forget now. But oh yeah, we had these put this puzzle um, running. We taught cricket throwing. It was hilarious, and it was just a brilliant opportunity to get to know some of the candidates before we asked them the formalised questions. And what I think about, and actually every single one who we interviewed, even the ones who were unsuccessful, bar none, said it was the best interview experience they'd ever had. They felt really comfortable because what I think about interviews is they're not there to scare people. You're there to try and see the best possible side mm. of someone to see and for them to see the best possible side of you to work out if you're going to fit. Because by the time someone's applied for the job, they're clearly going to be qualified Mm. so okay you test that out in the questions but the whole point is are you going to fit our team and are we going to fit what you think we are because you don't you spend a lot of time in work yeah. and you don't want to be working with people that you just don't gel with or that you, you know your ideas are not congruent with their ideas so so yeah hopefully we've made some fantastic appointments very excited um so yeah it was it was hilarious but i, I don't know I had a couple of people crying when they didn't get the job because they really liked us, which was cute as well. But then I helped them to go on and find other, other job opportunities. That was quite good as well. Well, you see, there you go. You kind of just, you know, you're bringing it back now. What you said in the beginning is coming true at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I'll help you find a job and I'll help you with your training. And Oh, yeah, you know, I that did. Work of thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right, four closing questions then. If you could wave a magic wand, how would you solve the life-work balance problem? Life-work balance? Uh, well, firstly, I would remove the accountability structure as it is in education. I would say no more to SATs and only the tests at primary school. I don't think they should be published. I don't think league tables should be published. And I don't think offset inspection should be published. I think that is probably the main cause of the accountability um, issue, which is probably the main cause of the stresses and the work-life balance crisis for teachers mm -hmm. and the head teachers. Um, I think if people focused more on what schools do for children and less on the outcomes that children achieve in tests, which are largely not attributable to schools because children only spend a small proportion of their time with us compared to what they do at home, then life would be much easier. Um, if I had a magic wand, yeah, I'd remove accountability. I would make people um, leave their laptops at school at least one day a week. And I would make them switch off their WhatsApp messages to their colleagues. I forced my senior leadership team to do that tonight, actually. I actually shouted at my senior leadership team in a nice, lovely way and said, leave your laptops in this office. Do not leave your, do not take your laptops home. They were all panicking. I must take them home, I've got so much work. And I said, you will not take your laptops home. That, that's an order from me. You will not take your laptops home. And they were like, but we have to. I said, no, you don't. You will not take your laptops. So they left them and off they went home. So it's been a sunny evening, a hot day, and hopefully they'll have all gone home and had a rest. So I think kind of get rid of accountability, leave your laptop in school at least one day a week and don't go on your group whatsapp chats for school you know after a certain time yeah yeah i don't know what a group whatsapp chat for school is like but i do know what microsoft teams is like for a whole company it's just yeah yeah <laughs> we're, quite, we're quite good at not doing it on an evening right now which is good but during the day i've turned off all notifications because i just i can't i can't do anything without being distracted every two minutes <laughs> it's just ridiculous well i i was writing um I like to read every child's report in my school. I like to read the report and make a personalised comment. And I was fo really heavily focused on that for the last couple of weeks. I'd say we've got a lot of children in our school. And I would be not looking at my senior leadership team WhatsApp chat. And then I'd turn and look at it and there'd be like 120 messages. Yeah. My, my eyeballs nearly fell out. I was like, what are you people doing? <laughs> Relax. But they all work so hard. Um, yeah. Yeah, and they're also determined to do a good job, and I've got such an amazing team that actually, it means that we don't we don't usually drop the ball. We've got everything covered, so I can't yeah. grumble too much. But you know, when you're looking at 100 messages at a go, just because you haven't looked at it for half an hour, you're like, oh my yeah. God. and you're bound to miss something. Then <laughs> I know. <laughs> so it could be WhatsApp is the future, but what do you think is the future of education in the next ten years? To hope. Um, 
policymakers and at government level they involve teachers and head teachers more and I don't mean in a combative way like perhaps they've had with the unions over the COVID handling I mean in a way that there seems to be a massive disconnect between the policymakers and their understanding of reality and teachers and head teachers and their absolute understanding of reality so for example this idea about vulnerable children and this idea that everyone could just go home and learn from home there's no actual understanding of reality for so many real homes that everybody was bamboozled why this couldn't happen until the penny dropped but it took weeks um you know the whole how can we feed our vulnerable children in the holidays question it took a footballer to raise that awareness whereas if actual head teachers who were doing the job not the kind of pets of the dfe or the pets of the government were asked if real people were just canvassed about what would work and what wouldn't work we could really help influence and guide policy making so i think hope my wish my, my blue sky thinking for education in the next 10 years is that policymakers listen to practitioners and that they do things informed by a whole range of research not just the research that they commission that fits into their box of accountability and testing and measuring i think there are other ways education could be configured mm. and i think it's time it's time to explore those ways and i think covid for all its negativity has given us a perfect pause in the kind of hamster wheel of education it's given a perfect time to say if we can do it a different way now why can we not look to doing things differently in the future and i'm hopeful that that kind of will go with gather gather momentum yeah yeah okay who was your favorite teacher at school and why um at primary school it was mrs swardlow and her, I took some year six students about 10 years ago over to the synagogue in Liverpool. Um, I wasn't meant to be going, but the two teachers were off sick that day and I was a deputy head, so I went with. And I saw her husband, he was uh, doing a talk about um, Jewish people and their plight over the many, many um, centuries and, and millennia. And he mentioned his name had been anglicised from Schwertloff to Swerdlow. And I thought, I was sat there in a daydream, and I thought, oh, how amazing is that, you know? And he said, my wife's just retired. She was a teacher for her entire career in inner city school. And I thought, surely it can't be the same. Surely, no, that's too much of a coincidence. And it was her. Wow. And yeah, so that was really mad. So he said, you know, she works here now sometimes. And I won't bore you with it, but essentially um, she was a teacher who one day sort of wrapped me up when I arrived at school uh, covered in my mum's blood and you know I'd walk to school at five and she kind of just she loved me and, and nurtured me and, and, it, and it really mattered but then at secondary school it was my uh, maths and my maths informed teacher Mr Robinson who I was going through a really tough time uh, home problems again and I hadn't been eating for weeks and weeks and weeks um, not because I didn't want to eat just because I hadn't been and um he used to share his sandwich with me every day and he didn't pry about what it was but he knew something was wrong and he sort of said he used to slide half a sandwich across the desk at me Aww. and he obviously knew I was hungry and um he sort of said is there anything you want to tell me and I couldn't bring myself to tell him so uh but he was lovely to me and I was able to speak to him some years later and tell him that um basically he'd almost saved my life and Mm. that 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 mattered i saw him in the airport with his wife who at the time was our deputy head um mm. but i saw him in the airport and i couldn't believe it and i nearly cried and i said to him thank you because you you know you really did save my life so i've got two two teachers who were wonderful to me in in, in my in my life that's amazing thank you yeah that they're lovely lovely stories and um, what did you want to be when you grew up uh in Liverpool in the 70s we got milk in cartons and <laughs> on the cartons they had different countries and I always used to try to get the carton that had Kenya on it and I was fascinated by this place because it had animals on the outside and I asked my mum what this place was and, and my, my auntie and they explained to me that there was a place and they talked to me about safaris and um explorers and you know all of this kind of 
very colonial life and I could imagine myself as being one of these um, people who just went on safari and lived in a house that looked over the savannah and so I decided when I was small that that's what I'd do I'd go and live in Kenya and just um, be a mem sub and just live this wonderful life looking at animals and funnily enough at 19 I did go to Kenya and then I ended up settling there for a little while and, and, um, and teaching but yeah, that's what I wanted to be as a small child. And then obviously as a teenager, I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. And now what I really like to be is just quietly happy. That's what I aspire to all the time, every day, quietly happy. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I've grown up yet, actually. I might be 45, but I don't think I've grown up. Maybe it'll happen one day. You definitely don't look 45 anyway. That's what <laughs> the podcast can see you, so they'll have to follow you on Twitter, won't they? Yep, head, what am I, head of woodlands on Twitter, at head of woodlands. Yeah, yeah. and um, next time she puts a job advert out, do you all apply? <laughs> the leadership team will be really happy about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you'll have to teach tap dancing. Oh, that was so funny. I can actually do a kickball change now, and I can also do really cool jazz hands, look. <laughs> Very impressive. Did you know that my, um, my degree is in musical theatre? No way! You're going to judge me! Don't grade those jazz hands! <laughs> I couldn't seem to be honest because <laughs> I've got my notes. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I think um, I've really appreciated how honest that you've been um, because I know that there'll be a lot of head teachers and school leaders out there that are feeling the same way and they'll appreciate that you've been so honest about how you're feeling about the situation how how you've found um people have reacted to to what you're trying to do and um just just thank you you're very welcome it's an absolute pleasure thanks for having me thank you so much for listening how can we plan when we have no idea how things will have changed in 10 weeks time All we can do is begin to think through different scenarios without putting too much effort into it and like Victoria says, conserve energy. I feel the same about returning to the office environment. We can't waste energy planning as there is no real need to right now and we don't know what the guidance will be when we do return and how often it's going to change before then. You'll find everything that Victoria and I talked about in the show notes, including a link to her TEDx talk. If it's the first time that you're listening to the Teachers Podcast, remember to subscribe and do explore the other episodes as I've had some truly inspirational and knowledgeable guests. It's a really great time to tap into some free CPD. You can also join me in the Teachers Podcast community on Facebook. See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teachers Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets, a provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.